0: This is our fourth message in a winter preaching series that we've entitled Life with the Spirit of God. We're devoting sermons on Sunday mornings and evenings to the subject of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. If you've been following along with us, that's obvious to you. If this is your first time, if you're visiting on a Sunday night, this Sunday night of all, Sunday nights, or you're live streaming for the first time, then we're kind of coming in at the middle. You may be wondering why we decided to take up this subject. Why, as pastoral staff and elders, did we decide to consider with this whole month uh, the life with the Spirit of God, in particular the personal work of the Holy Spirit? And Really, J.I. Packer's assessment from 50 years ago provides a good explanation. He says this in his classic Knowing God. The average Christian is in a complete fog as to what the work the Holy Spirit does. Some talk of the Spirit of Christ in the way that one would talk of the Spirit of Christmas. Some think of the Spirit as inspiring the moral convictions of unbelievers like Gandhi. But most, perhaps, do not think of the Holy Spirit at all and have no positive ideas of any sort about what he does. Our hope is that this series of messages can at least begin to remedy that. That If we don't think of the Spirit or we don't have any concept about what he does, that we could gain a little Traction there. Thus far, Pastor Rick has shown us from Scripture that the Holy Spirit gives spiritual life. He empowers spiritual life, He instructs spiritual life, He sustains spiritual life. And this morning we learned that He gifts the church to build up spiritual life. The Holy Spirit is important. The Holy Spirit is important to the life and ministry of Mission Road Bible Church, and I'm stating the obvious because sometimes we perceive those who, like our church, do not practice the so-called charismatic gifts are somehow less in tune with the Spirit or give Him less honor or less pride of place in our gatherings. But, and this is critical, the Holy Spirit is not just a special gift for extraordinary external action. His work is fundamental and foundational. It's essential in the life of a believer, as Pastor Rick has shown us. Calvin said that when it comes to our spiritual lives, quote, there is not a drop of vigor in us, save what the Holy Spirit instills. And that's true. And our understanding that Scripture teaches, our understanding of Scripture to teach that the extraordinary gifts are no longer in operation does not negate the fact that we believe and teach that He provides every drop of our spiritual vigor. And that's important. So what about the extraordinary gifts? What are we talking about tonight? Well, really, tonight's an interesting interesting time. I hesitate to call it a sermon. This would be as if we were getting coffee together and you said, why do you believe... Or why do you hold to a cessationist position? Why does Mission Road Bible Church teach that the extraordinary gifts have ceased? That's how I've structured the message. If we were sitting down together having coffee in in one, I won't say an hour, about 40 minutes of coffee, what would I say? This is not in any way intended to be the definitive treatment on the extraordinary gifts. This probably won't even be the last time we mention this this year, let alone a life of our church. Pastor Rick preached a series on this when he went through Romans chapter 12. Uh, it's been some years ago now. <laughs> but took, pulled the car over and did an extended time, and you can listen to those on our website. We will address this again. So tonight, our hope is just to, to have a conversation, a one-way conversation, uh, about the extraordinary gifts, right? We're not charismatics, right? Of course. So... What about these gifts? What about the extraordinary gifts? What are we talking about? Well, terminology and definition is just at the start, and this is where we throw around the position, cessationism and continuationism. These two positions give different answers to the question, do the miraculous and revelatory gifts still exist in the church today? And the continuationist position says, yes, the miraculous and revelatory gifts exist today and continue In the life of the church until the return of christ and the cessationist position would say no the miraculous and revelatory gifts ceased with the close of the apostolic era now at this point we already have to start qualifying and it's important for us to know that there is a broad spectrum of continuationists at the extreme end you have false teachers who blaspheme god And ascribe acts to the Holy Spirit that look nothing like the beauty and the balance and control of our God. They ascribe words to Almighty God that don't accord with the word of Almighty God. They are on the extreme side. And as I said, they're false teachers. But broad brushing all continuationists as charismaniacs or as those on the extreme is uncharitable and unhelpful. And that's important. There are conservative, Bible-believing, Christ-exalting brothers and sisters that are continuationists. They are our friends. (laughs) Some of their books are on our reading list. Our pastors have shared pulpits with them and will share pulpits with them. And they are closer to us theologically than the false teachers that show up on TBN. And it's very important that we note that as we talk about this, because while we're going to, you know, kind of lay out two categories, the one category is very broad, and lumping them all together is, again, it's uncharitable. Now, that said, even though there's closeness theologically, on this question, the question of extraordinary gifts, we differ, and we differ strongly. This is not an open question at MRBC. All right, let me make that clear. MRBC elders are not open to the exercise of the gifts or the continuation uh, of the gifts in our gatherings. We're not open to the position that our continuation is friends. Even the friends that Pastor Aiken will go preach for or that we may have preach here, or the songs that we sing even tonight by some of our brothers who hold the continuation as positions on certain things. We're not close on that question. And we share in broader gospel ministry, but not shepherding and leadership in the local church level context. And that's important to know. This is not an open question for us. Now, my aim for the rest of our time is to give an abbreviated summary of really the reasons we believe the cessationist position best represents the exegesis of Scripture and the theology of the New Testament. We also believe this position best equips the church to rightly understand the gifting ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's why we're devoting time to this. It does matter, right? It matters. The Lord has given us His word, He is not silent on these questions and this matters, and so we want to understand. After we give this abbreviated summary, I want to address some of the common misconceptions that really can get in the way of clarity on this issue. And lastly, and time permitting, time permitting, I'll address a couple common objections. If I don't get to those, we can just have an actual coffee, and I'll be glad to talk you through those. Really, our time together tonight is not designed to be a polemic against them out there, okay? This is for us. This is for me, for you, for us as the Mission Road body. That's my intended audience, not our continuationist brothers and sisters. They have questions, they have arguments that I simply won't have time to address tonight. I want this time, this brief time, and I think it's the hope of our staff and elders in addressing this issue, to increase your and my understanding on this matter, to raise new questions in your mind, if need be, and invite you to follow up with your pastors and elders if you find yourself lacking clarity or understanding. So very briefly, and don't try to write down, and I'll send this to you or we can post it on the website, but what's our position just in in brief? Well, we believe and teach of the extraordinary gifts, miracles, prophecy, tongues, and some of the related gifts, like the interpretation of tongues or discerning the spirits, that they served primarily to authenticate the message of the apostles and New Testament prophets and to reveal God's word in a foundational way for the building up of the early church. As the church was established and the work of the apostles came to a close, the need for the authenticating signs and the revelatory gifts that accompanied their foundational ministry, that ceased. (laughs) Already, what gets complicated in this is that our friends on, on the other position, we actually use the same terms but have different dictionaries. And so even what I just said, what I mean by prophecy in tongues, for example... Some of them would define differently. Is prophecy infallible revelation from God, or is it speech inspired by the Holy Spirit that may contain error? Are tongues actual known languages that a speaker is miraculously given, having never learned them, or is it ecstatic utterance that doesn't have any linguistic form, but it has some sort of spiritual value? Those are actually the, the areas that divide us, that cause these positions to be separate not lack of regard for the Holy Spirit, not lack of desire that the gifts be expressed and exercised in this body. It's the definitions of prophecy in tongues. You could really boil it down to those two things. And when I say that, I'm I'm referring to the position that's just on the other side of the aisle from us. We differ on these definitions, and that's honestly what separates the positions. So on prophecy, we believe and teach that the gift of New Testament prophecy is equivalent with Old Testament prophecy that New Testament prophets declared the word of the Lord, the infallible, the free from error word of the Lord that they received directly from God, supernaturally, extraordinarily. And similarly, we believe that the gifts of tongues were actual languages, miraculously given to those who had never learned them, and that when interpreted, they were actually revelatory. They served a purpose just like prophecy. It's what Paul teaches. That's why they're edifying when an interpretation was given, because it was revelation. They were prophetic. The tongues we see in Scripture, when they were evangelistic. They were also evidence of God's judgment on Israel. And then, as I said, when they were interpreted, they were revelatory, but actual languages. And lastly, we believe that the gift of miracles or healings was given to individuals who were empowered to instantaneously and supernaturally heal the sick, the infirmed. The primary purpose of that gift was to authenticate the apostolic message and the apostles themselves. As Rick noted this morning, and this is very important because we hear this a lot. As Rick noted this morning, this is not the same thing as saying that miracles or healings have ceased. Right. Let's make sure that we understand that. To say that the gift of healings and miracles have ceased is not the same thing as saying that healings or even the miraculous has ceased. The question is whether God gives individuals in the church the supernatural ability to heal someone in an obviously miraculous way, not does God still heal, right? That's not the question, okay? That's important. Sometimes folks want to remain open to continuationism or they're afraid of saying that they're a cessationist because they think cessationism is anti-miracle or tends toward anti-supernatural. That's a false view, of the position of cessationism. Believing that the gift of miracles and healing has ceased does not limit God, it does not put God in a box. The last time I checked, he is just as free and powerful to do whatever he wants when he pleases. He can heal whom he providentially determines to heal and sovereignly to heal. And he can do that miraculously if he wants. What we're saying is is that individuals in this body don't have that gift. And they're not going to lay their hands on and instantaneously heal somebody. We don't believe that's an operation anymore. So the question here is not what God can do, but what should we expect him to do based on what he has said he, he will do? Let me just say, if I get sick, please pray for my healing. I just won't expect one of you to come over and lay hands on me and to be instantly made well. But I hope that you're praying. As you probably surmise from this description of our position, look, this issue can't be solved by simply quoting one or two verses. And that's important. That's a, an acknowledgment, a concession from, from our position, and it should be from the other side too. This is not a one or a two verse sort of issue. It's, it's more complex than that. It's based on the understanding of the New Testament as a whole. There's nuance. It's multi-layered and, and it's theological, and we build arguments kind of together and then take a, a complex group of assertions that help us see this, this position. And so I say that because cessation is we need to be warned against overly simplistic explanations that don't account for some of the nuances in scripture. And our continuation is friends need to be warned against ignoring the occasional nature of New Testament epistles or isolating gifts passages from the overall flow of New Testament history. It's not a simplistic issue. So for a summary, I want to give you four reasons why we believe the extraordinary gifts have ceased. Four reasons why we believe the extraordinary gifts have ceased. And we're not going to be furiously turning through the Bible. I just kind of want to give you an overview. There are a couple passages we'll look at briefly. But again, this is, this is time at a coffee table, not a sermon. Reason number one is that the apostles and prophets serve the unique foundational role. And Pastor Rick taught on this in Ephesians. I'm saying that a lot tonight, but it's true. Pastor Rick taught on this and that and this and that. Now, he just recently walked through Ephesians 2 and then Ephesians 3, and we dealt with this. And you can go back and look more closely at those, those passages in that sermon. But the apostles and prophets served a unique foundational role. Just think about this, what the Bible presents as the way that apostles kind of came on the scene and what their job was, right? First, we, we know the, the office of apostle was limited, Right? capital A, Apostle, was limited. It was a limited office. They had to be appointed by Jesus. They had to be eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. We see that in Acts 1. We see that in John 15. We see that later in Acts 10 and other places in Acts. And these men who were appointed, who had been with Christ, who had seen Christ, they were told that the Holy Spirit would inspire their message and proclamation and that they, this select group, would then testify about Christ because they had been with him from the beginning. Not only that, they would be supernaturally enabled to testify about him by the Holy Spirit after he went away. And that's the teaching of John 14, 26, John 15, 26. And then we hear that even prayed for in the high priestly prayer. When Christ says, I'm not praying for this group only, but those who, importantly, will believe through their word, the ones whom he appointed and supernaturally then enabled to communicate that truth. So you see a very tight group, and you see a very tight transmission of the truth from Jesus to his apostles and then from them to others, they being supernaturally inspired. Paul calls himself the last apostle, right? He kind of settles the matter for us. We get a little insight into this when Judas meets his unfortunate end, and then Matthias is chosen, And the qualifications from Matthias are clear. And then Paul comes on the scene. He meets those requirements. The Lord himself calls Paul to apostleship. He sees the resurrected Christ. And then he says, I'm the last apostle. So apostles are there. What about prophets? Well, the existence of prophets in the New Testament is more inconspicuous than the apostles. But scripture always links them closely. And then explicitly says that they're foundational along with the apostles. We ask this: who were the first pastors, if you will, of these new churches? The apostles, right? Who was the first shepherd in Corinth? If, if you Paul, right? And in Thessalonica. It was Paul. So who was there at Corinth and Thessalonica when the gift of prophecy was established? An apostle. Right? An apostle. So the prophetic gift that was in operation in conjunction with apostolic ministry was closely linked with apostles. And that's both surmised from what I just said, but then it's explicitly declared and we're gonna see that in just a minute. So the apostles and prophets served a unique foundational role. The office of apostle was limited. Prophets were then linked with this limited office and in close conjunction with them. Then we see that the purpose of this limited office, the purpose also of apostles and prophets, was foundational. It's explicitly declared. You can look at Ephesians 2 with me briefly just to be reminded of that. But the foundational nature of these two offices is explicitly stated in Scripture. Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We see that in the early Acts when the first converts are what? Devoting themselves in Acts 2 to the apostles' teaching. And we're gonna take a very brief tour through Acts in a minute and see how the apostles' teaching and the apostles' miracles were what was happening as the word of God spread, always in conjunction with the apostles. You can also see the order in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, where Paul lists apostles first and prophets, and that seems to be a, a reflective of what he says here about foundation. But the illustration is plain. You don't continually build a foundation, right? You lay a foundation, and you build upon it. That's deep insight, right? No, you build on a foundation, and that's the point that he's making. The foundation was the apostles and prophets, and then everything else as the church was built up, was built upon them. Now, what about the apostles and prophets was foundational? Well, their message and their instructing work, their message, again, going all the way back to John 14, 15, 16, 17, you see the the genesis of their ministry and message in Jesus as he's saying how the Holy Spirit is going to be instrumental in that. But then you see that played out. Their foundational role was revelatory. That was their job. The revelation of salvation in Christ through the Spirit whom he sent and all teaching upon these, for these first churches from the Spirit, that's what the churches were built up upon. The message, the proclamation, and then the teaching and instruction of the apostles and prophets that was supernatural. And we're going to see below passages in our second reason that's very, very close to this. So we'll see, and we'll look at that stated explicitly in just a minute. But the apostles and prophets were foundational, and what was foundational about them Their message, their proclamation, their instructing work. So the second reason that we believe the extraordinary gifts have ceased is that the extraordinary gifts served an authenticating and foundation-building purpose, closely tied in, of course, with those who manifest these gifts, the apostles and prophets. So the extraordinary gifts served an authenticating and foundation-building purpose. One is authentic, authentication. or authentication. It's declared and demonstrated in Scripture. So they authenticated the apostolic message, and that is declared, and we're going to look at that. And it's also demonstrated when you read through Acts. So first, look briefly at 2 Corinthians 12.12. 12. Sometimes we're asked by our continuation as friends, like, is there really such a thing as sign gifts? I, just, I think all the gifts are in the same category. You've, you've arbitrarily designated certain gifts as sign gifts to support your position. But as has been pointed out already, and here uh, the Scriptures identify these gifts as signs. 2 Corinthians 12.12, Paul is arguing for the validity of his ministry and he tells those in Corinth, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. And we have to ask, if there's not such a thing as a sign gift or an extraordinary gift that was connected with the apostle, then Paul's appeal is meaningless. He didn't say spiritual gifts were exercised in your midst, and they said, yeah, we know. In the last time you wrote us in our first letter, you talked all about it. Like, no, he's saying specific signs that were Accompanying his apostolic ministry that were evidence of him being an apostle were exercised in their midst. And he expected them to recognize that particular type of gift. Or else again, his appeal is meaningless. Similarly, look at Hebrews chapter two. Hebrews chapter two. In this warning where he says, for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. You hear the different generation, if you will, Jesus, then those who heard from him, and then those to whom it was confirmed, that being the author to the Hebrews and those whom he's writing to, God also testifying with them, the ones who received it from Jesus, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. What the writer is pointing to is something that was past, tense from the perspective of the writer to the Hebrews. And he's saying, look at this message. How much greater would our problem be if we neglect this message, the one that Jesus gave to his associates that then we heard from them? You know, the one that was confirmed in them by these supernatural gifts. So they were attesting. He's saying that they were attested. Those apostles were confirmed and testified by the Lord by these signs and wonders. So it's explicitly declared. And just as an aside, 1 Corinthians 14, prophecy and tongues are actually both referred to as signs. Tongues being a sign to unbelievers, prophecy being a sign to believers. Now, this authenticating purpose is demonstrated in, in Acts as we see the early church borne out. I'm just going to give you a quick tour. Acts 2, 43 everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Acts 4.33, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon all them. Acts 5.12, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. Acts 8:14 Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God they sent them Peter and John why because it took apostles to authenticate what was going on up there and the gift of the spirit came when the apostles were present and authenticated it Acts 14:3 Paul and Barnabas therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. So you hear both there. It's this close group, the apostle Paul, Barnabas, and then you see what was the purpose of these miracles? To testify to the word of his grace that they were there proclaiming. So you see that authenticating purpose. Acts 13, Acts 19 in longer narrative sections demonstrate that the miraculous gifts were attending the apostles' ministry and then as a result of that, the word of the Lord grew. But the gifts there in Acts 13 and Acts 19 are talking about the apostles. And as the message was authenticated, people were coming to the faith. So we see that the authenticating purpose of these gifts it's declared, it's demonstrated. And then let's go back now the foundation building purpose of these revelatory gifts. Ephesians 3.5. Ephesians 3.5. Paul refers to this truth, the mystery of Christ, verse 4, verse 5 now, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed. Who is it revealed to? his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. So the apostles had this specific ministry and the gifts, this revelation that they had, prophets prophesy, right? Apostles proclaim and teach. It was for foundation building, for building up the church in a foundational way. Second Peter 3, 2, he, he refers back what? To the instruction first of the Old Testament prophets and then of the Lord, which then came through also the apostles. And then Jude 3 and Jude 17, he starts off, we of course know Jude 3, the faith once handed down to the saints, this body of truth that through revelation and through the appointed messengers was given to the church. But interestingly, Jude writes in verse 17, he says, remember remember the apostles' instructions. Why? He's pointing back to foundational, foundation building revelation that came through these important people in the early church. And that's also why prophecy was to be exalted instead of uninterpreted tongues in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Why? Because it was revelatory. Because it was foundation building. Because it built up the church. Because uninterpreted tongues were not for anything other than a sign, he said, to unbelievers. So the foundational role of the revelatory gifts to authenticate the message and actually to then build up, which I feel I'm redundant, but let's just make that clear again. What was foundational about? Well, the actual prophetic word that was being revealed was necessary to build the church, to lay the foundation that later generations would then look back to like the writer to the Hebrew says he's doing, right? Like Jude says to do like even Peter, who's an apostle, says to do. A third reason. A third reason that we believe the extraordinary gifts have ceased, and that is the diminishing emphasis of the extraordinary ministry of the Spirit in the New Testament church. The diminishing emphasis of the extraordinary ministry of the Spirit in the New Testament church. This is simply to say, as you work your way through what we may call New Testament history you see the emphasis on the extraordinary is diminished so if we think chronologically you think very early in New Testament history very active in terms of the extraordinary we see that in acts at least accompanying the apostles we see the testimony in Corinth where gifts were were there that the apostles were helping to regulate But as you make your way then toward the the end of the New Testament era, there's a diminishing emphasis on the extraordinary gifts. This is one of the problems with terminology. Cessationism and continuationism make it sound like this. Makes it sound like extraordinary gifts were actually ordinary, okay? Extraordinary gifts were, were ordinary, that was the norm. You know, just a normal Sunday at church, people being healed, people prophesying, tongues being interpreted, miracles happening all over the place. That's just every, you know, normal Sunday. And then continuationists say, and that's supposed to happen until Christ comes back. And cessationists say, no, all of a sudden, sometime that normalness just stopped. But Really, neither position reflects the, the progression, if you will, through the New Testament. It doesn't seem to be the case. In Acts, the demonstrations of the extraordinary were tightly connected to the apostles. And then, as we begin to look at, even if we assume widespread gifting very early, as you read the epistles, just a plain reading of the epistles reveals that the gifts are not nearly as big a deal in all the epistles as we tend to make them to be when discussing this issue. As the New Testament era draws to a close, there's a significant diminished emphasis on the extraordinary gifts in the life of the church. Just some examples. In tongues, Paul wrote 12 epistles after 1 Corinthians. He never mentions tongues again. Peter, James, John, and Jude never mention tongues. Even the earliest epistles, Galatians or 1 Thessalonians, don't mention tongues as an important part of the Christian growth or experience. What about Prophecy. Well, we just saw that in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer to the Hebrews refers to a foundational era that was actually earlier than when he was writing, when at that time there was a message coming forth that was authenticated with miracles. It's interesting that as he's writing scripture, he's even referring to an earlier time where foundational revelation was being given, similar with Jude, as we referenced earlier, when he says, Remember the apostles' instruction. Most notably, is that there's no instruction given in the pastoral epistles to set in order any of the so-called sign gifts. They're not even mentioned. Timothy is charged to read Scripture and to preach the Word, not to foster the gift of prophecy in the church at Ephesus. He's also charged, interestingly, to personally confront false teachers who disagreed not with prophecies, but with the apostles' teaching that he had given to Timothy. And that's way different than false prophets and prophecies being discerned with extraordinary gifts. Timothy is told to guard what Paul had entrusted to him, and then he is told to personally use the gift that he received from Paul in his ministry to others in Ephesus but he's never told to await new manifestations of gifts or to fan into flame prophetic gifts in that congregation that was struggling with false teachers in their midst. That's very interesting. Some say, well, that's an argument from silence. It, It is, but it's important. This is how one ought to conduct themselves in the church, the household of God, says Paul to Timothy. And there's barely any mention of gifts other than the gift that Timothy himself received from Paul as an apostolic associate who would then be used, I would say, as a foundation piece for the building up of the church. There is no mention of extraordinary gifts in the qualifications for church leadership. I find that profound. Elders are to be able to teach. Teach. But if we understood gifts in in an essential way for the life of the church, the notion that the leaders of the church that Timothy was to seek out on a point and that we don't have to necessarily demonstrate those things, especially prophecy, which is key for edification in Corinth, that stands out. In Timothy's Ephesus, those who worked hard at preaching and teaching are the ones to be set aside for the instruction of the church. Not those with a prophetic gift. It seems the gift of prophecy was was not that regular at that time. If we could call it the ordinary means of the Spirit of God working through the Word of God, through the leaders that He has called and appointed in the church, that was to be the means of edification in Ephesus. That's what we mean by seeing that there's a diminishing emphasis on the gifts. And by the time you have the, the closest thing we have to a manual for the church being the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, the gifts are not there. What about healings? Well, interestingly, Paul does not heal Epaphroditus, though he almost died, Philippians 2.27. He doesn't heal Trophimus in Second Timothy 4.20. And he doesn't instruct Timothy when he's got an ailment in his stomach to seek out a healer in the church. Or say that, you know, if, if they could connect again that Paul would would heal him. Dr. Sam Storms, a continuationist, claims that he is a continuationist for at least one reason because of the quote, consistent, indeed pervasive and altogether positive presence throughout the New Testament of all spiritual gifts. And I disagree. All of the gifts are not positively present throughout all of the New Testament. And that's available to all of us just by reading our New Testament. And I just gave you some examples. As you read the instruction to the churches, focus is on what? It's on holding fast to the truth that's been once delivered through the apostolic message and then guarding against false teaching. And one wonders, if prophecy was always active and still today, why the focus of New Testament commands? Why, why aren't there more commands that to seek it out, to fan it to flame, to appoint those with that to leadership in the church? I think those are important questions. A good answer is that the gift was temporary for foundation building, and that after the foundation was laid, the gift ceased to be necessary by God's design. And today, just as in the latter New Testament era, the church is built up not by new revelation, but by pastors and teachers who work hard at teaching the scriptures, proclaiming the truth once handed down to the saints, the apostolic message that was in fact validated and authenticated by miraculous signs and even given by direct revelation. Fourthly and lastly, the fourth reason that we believe the extraordinary gifts have ceased. Is the apparently, and I know I'm using weasel words here. Okay, this is number four in the list. The apparently temporary nature of tongues and prophecy. The apparently temporary nature of tongues and prophecy. Remember what I said. This is not a one verse thing. This is. You kind of build together as you understand the New Testament and you look at exegesis and you look at New Testament theology and you see the role of the apostles and the role of these gifts and you look at the diminishing emphasis and then you come to 1 Corinthians 13. And we see what I'm calling the apparently temporary nature of tongues and prophecy. 1 Corinthians 13 teaches that tongues and prophecy are temporary. That much is clear. There's actually no disagreement about that. It's hard to disagree with what Paul says. If there are gifts of prophecy, 1 Corinthians 13:8, right? They will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. So the fact that they are temporary, that much is clear. So it's, it's inaccurate to say that the New Testament doesn't say some gifts will come to an end. 1 Corinthians 13 says some gifts will come to an end. The harder question is when, right, when? But we have to at least acknowledge the first part. Sometimes we present this issue as if Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, the gifts will continue until Jesus comes, but that's not what he says. He says that these gifts will cease. The hard question then is, but When? And that's where there's a lot of debate, and it's difficult to determine. Various positions, right? When when will this? Well, when the perfect comes, verse 10, the partial things will be done away. And you say, well, what is the perfect? And I'd say, let's go out for coffee and talk about it, right? Some of the positions, some say it's a completed canon of Scripture. Some say it's a spiritual maturity of the church at large, maybe the church at Corinth, because of the word used for perfect. It means mature, complete. Many say the second coming. Both continuationists and cessationists say the second coming. So whatever the answer is there, it's saying the gift's going to cease. Well, when? Well, either when the New Testament was completed, when there was a certain level of maturity, when, or when Jesus comes back. I personally lean toward the maturity of the church. I believe it fits well with the understanding of the apostles and their prophetic associates and messages as foundational being built up into what? Into a a more mature place. But even if we grant the eternal state or the second coming as the perfect, we're still left with this question. Why does Paul say that these particular gifts will cease? if there's no chance that they were gonna cease prior to the second coming of Christ or no chance that the church at Corinth would ever understand, like, what's the, like, why tell them this? Why give this instruction? Why argue for their temporary nature? And I don't have an easy answer to that question, but we have to ask it. That's the argument Paul's making. He's saying something about these gifts, they need to know that they have a temporary nature in some fashion. So certainly one, One reason, right, Paul highlighted this is because the Corinthians were wrongly exalting them over enduring and more important realities for the church, which he names for us here in 1 Corinthians 13 as faith, hope, and love. That's instructive. He asserts in the midst of this discourse on extraordinary gifts that the ordinary working of the Spirit that is bringing about love in the heart is more important that's, that's important. That's instructive, instructive for us. Right? Faith, hope, and love are, are to receive priority over the gifts that the Corinthians were exercising: prophecy and tongues. Miraculous, extraordinary gifts. I believe he calls them temporary as a warning for the Corinthians, right? He warns them that they're prioritizing temporary realities that are going to pass away. And at some point, he says, faith, hope, and love, those are going to persevere. And I think he's telling the Corinthians, like, get your priorities straight. You're making a big deal about these gifts to the expense of love. You're exalting yourselves with these gifts instead of edifying the church. You're not showing love to one another. And that's actually way more important. These gifts you're saying are the most important thing, they're temporary. Faith, hope, and love are not temporary. And then we get to ask this question, well, but will there be faith and hope in heaven? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think Paul was telling them that faith and hope are going to be what they cling to for all eternity with the resurrected returning Christ, so they should stop prioritizing the gifts right now. I think he's telling them, you're in danger of clinging way too tightly and exalting way too tightly something that's temporary that you're not going to have forever. But these things, faith and hope and love in the body, those are the things that will endure and that needs to be your focus. I believe this passage when understood in conjunction with the reasons already noted at least leans toward a cessationist position, that the diminishing emphasis of the gifts and the fact that in some way, shape, or form in their nature, they're temporary over and against ordinary things that the Spirit works in our hearts, faith, hope, and love, that that's important to understand. Not definitive, but very important. Commenting on this passage, Jonathan Edwards, one of the most spiritually-minded theologians who saw... All kinds of things, right? If you know anything about his time and context, he said that Paul's teaching in this passage should make persons exceedingly cautious how they give heed to anything which looks like revelation or any extraordinary gift of the Spirit. I mean, is it okay to say Jonathan Edwards is on our team on this one? All right, so those four reasons, but in, our, in the final time that we have together, I want to do some brush clearing. I want to clear away some brush and thicket of misconceptions that obscure our view of this. Right? I told you it was going to be fast. Those four reasons. That's coffee. We sit down. Why are you a cessationist? Here's four reasons, and you just got those. But I would also want to clear away some of the brush, some of the thicket that prevents a clear view of these things or prevents an eagerness to dig into the scriptures on the points I just raised and instead brings up other things. And The first one is, look, we must be careful not to confuse emotions with empowerment. This comes across like this. Yeah, I hear you, Myril, but I've been in charismatic worship services and the presence of God just seems to be more palpable there. There can be a tendency to confuse the role of emotion or passion the affections in the Christian life in general and the affections in worship more specifically when we talk about these issues. Are hands raised charismatic or hands down charismatic? Is an audible response make you a continuationist and a silent contemplation make you a cessationist? Like, no. (laughs) Hands raised does not make one a charismatic and hands down does not make one a cessationist. That's not the point, right? Those are just External actions, functions of personality and emotion, affections, our makeup, they don't tell us anything one way or the other necessarily in and of themselves. Sometimes you hear this, there's assessments of there's no vitality or no passion in the music or no passion in response to preaching in non-charismatic churches. Well, that could be true, but it may also be more of a reflection of an aesthetic that you appreciate, a preference, a feel. I yell at football games. I yell at sporting events. I have emotional outbursts about things like football games, which I know is getting close. Right? Sometimes it's said, like, you, cessationist with your hands in your pockets, you know, but you'll go to a football game and you respond viscerally. And I say, well, I do respond viscerally at football games. But if we're talking about emotional experience, I didn't clap and yell at my wedding. I also didn't cheer loudly at the birth of my children. And that sounds funny, but let me tell you, I was deeply moved emotionally in both of those circumstances, and my reaction looked nothing like it does for a football game. The point of that is that simplistic sort of equating emotions and those sort of bodily responses, they don't tell the whole story. They may not even tell an accurate story all of us could give countless examples if you've, in our digital age, we can see things on YouTube or even TBN of false worship that feel very worshipful if we were just basing it on emotional response. But the content is lacking. It's not spirit and truth, right? It's heat with no light. And that's, that's, emotions in and of themselves are nothing to determine this position when we are. Borrowing terminology from Edwards, again, in his religious affections, he says those are just unreliable signs. They don't argue one way or the other. They're not positive or negative. They're just emotions. They can be brought on by sin. They can be brought on by that which is holy. In and of themselves, they tell us nothing. And even when prompted by what appears to be godly on their own, they don't tell us much. So beware of that. Why can we be brought to tears by a well-placed musical score at just the right moment in a movie or even a commercial (laughs) and sometimes not feel anything when you're singing a theologically rich hymn? I don't know because emotions are fickle and we're complex, but they're unreliable signs of the Spirit's work. Two warnings. Don't allow your emotional preference to obscure what the Bible says about actual spiritual empowerment and recognize the immaturity of rendering judgment on the affections of other blood-bought saints based on your aesthetic preferences. Don't let your preference dictate what you believe about someone else's affections for Jesus. Be more careful than that. Secondly, we must be careful not to substitute experience for exegesis. This is, yeah, but I hear you, my friend's cousin, he knows a guy who saw someone raised from the dead in the underground church in a closed country. That happens. You may have heard those things. I've heard those things. The danger here is simply viewing scripture through the lens of experience rather than experience through the lens of scripture. Similar to emotions, our job is to do invalidate anyone's experience. It's to make sure we understand the scriptures and that we're evaluating everything in light of them. What is more sure? Peter told us that the scripture was a more sure word than his visual of the transfigured Jesus Christ. That's important. I grew up in an Assemblies of God church. I saw so-called manifestations of the Spirit regularly. My experience is no substitute for exegesis, okay? Doesn't make me an expert one way or the other. It's just experience. We go back to the Scriptures. Be very careful what you're anxious to give God credit for in terms of experience. And lastly, we must be careful not to elevate self rather than edify others. In our understanding of the gifts, particularly this issue, we must be very careful not to elevate self instead of edifying others. This comes as a, yeah, I hear you, but I want to pursue a deeper devotion to Jesus through the exercise of these gifts. Well, the clearest aspect of the New Testament teaching on gifts is their purpose, and unequivocally the gifts are for the benefit of others. We heard that this morning. From the perspective of the recipients of the gift, the purpose is always outward. It's always outward. And that is contrary to the individualistic emphasis that we see of some continuationists that presume that prophecy or tongues is for a deeper prayer life or more insight into the will of God personally. I think that flies in the face of the explicit purpose of the gifts. As an example, Dr. Sam Storm says this, I don't believe that I am now a better Christian than you because I speak in tongues. I simply believe that I am now on my way to being a better Christian than I was before I received this gift. God forbids us to compare ourselves with others as if we, because of a particular gift, were better than they are, to which I say, amen. Then he goes on. It is an essential part of the Christian life that we grow up in our faith and deepen our devotion to Jesus through the increase and expansion of the Spirit's work in our lives. I can only speak for myself, but I have grown in my love for the Scriptures since receiving this gift. Again, at the beginning he says that he's on his way to being a better Christian because of receiving the gift. I just want to say that testimony and testimonies like that imply that In his case, speaking in tongues is an essential part of his growth and devotion to Jesus. And I would just ask, if gifts are given for the edification for others, then why is there so much emphasis in some circles of charismaticism or continuationism on self-edification and the use of the gifts? The very striving after a fuller experience of the Spirit is contrary to the New Testament teaching about the purpose of the gifts. The clear emphasis of scripture is a life of devotion to Jesus that manifests itself in spiritual fruit. In multiple locations, right, we're called to walk by the Spirit. We're called to live according to the Spirit. We're called to be controlled by or filled with the Spirit. And those are always set in contrast to something like setting our minds on the flesh, getting drunk, or carrying out the deeds of the flesh. That's the focus. The aim is fruit, not gifts when you see the teaching of the Holy Spirit in terms of personal growth, personal devotion, evidences of your commitment to Jesus. Yes, we're to desire gifts, edifying gifts. We're to desire gifts that edify and desire to see them exercised in this body. We're not to desire them for personal advancement. We're not to desire them for personal devotion. I don't think that accords with the teaching of Scripture. I know there's the, but what about First Thessalonians 5 that says, don't despise prophecy? Well, the short answer, if prophecy is no longer active, then we don't have anything to despise, right? That command was there for them because prophecy was active in the church. That's not a problem text. What about 1 Corinthians 14 where it says, desire the greater gifts, especially that you may prophesy? Well, what would we expect Paul to say? Prophecy was an active gift in Corinth, and it was the edifying one, he says, it was revelatory, it was necessary for the building up of that church. And so of course he would tell them to desire it. We're not in a position to apply that in a one-to-one kind of a way. There's a, an occasional nature to those letters. He was writing specific people, specific place and time. And so we apply principles from those. But we don't apply them one-to-one. And we can talk way more about that some other time. I know that there are, well, did, Paul didn't forbid tongues. He, that's right, he didn't. There's an answer for that, right? tongues was happening in Corinth, right? What what would we expect him to say? So let's talk more about that if you have questions. Let me close with this. Let me just say, if you have a position on this that's different than your elders, be willing to sit down with any of us with an open Bible and talk. We believe this is important, We believe it's important for your spiritual growth in this church to rightly understand the gifts. That's why we've devoted a month, the better part of a month, to teaching about the work of the Spirit and have focused on gifts. We'll all be better off if we all have a better understanding of the gifts. And we want you to rightly understand how this conversation relates to things like pursuing your devotion to Jesus and like your sanctification and like what types of gifts you should desire to be exercised in this body. I also say this if you've chased charismatic experience as a means of communion with Jesus only to find disappointment, can I tell you that that's not the Lord withholding good from you? Talk to your brothers or sisters in Christ that have walked with Jesus that are in this congregation and let them encourage you about what it looks like to love him to walk closely with him, to have affections for him, apart from any pursuit of some so-called ecstatic experience is going to confirm that for you. Don't be embarrassed about that. Grab somebody that you see that looks like they've walked with Jesus maybe a little bit longer than you and say, you know, I've struggled with this. Can we talk about that? And lastly, I would just say, we should want gifts that bring edification to flourish at Mission Road Bible Church. As cessationists, we should want gifts that bring edification to flourish in this church. And that's what we were told today. And we should do that, and we should desire that individually for the good of the body and to see it in others for the good of the body while acknowledging that God sovereignly distributes gifts with diversity and according to his will. And then we should desire all of that for the building up of this church unto Christ, unto maturity and perfection. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we have questions and questions that sometimes we look to your word and think, man, I wish it said something different. And yet we are rebuked because we know that your word is perfect and you've given us exactly what we need to live the life you've called us to to live. Help us to help one another consider these things. Help us to go back to the scriptures with humility to seek clarity on these things and help us to rightly think about your spirit as he guides and sustains and powers and gifts us in this body so that we're all made more like Jesus. We ask all of these things in his name, amen.